0: We're moving through the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings, and uh, I have been choosing one text per chapter for us to study. And uh, I always recommend, by the way, whenever we do this, and I don't hit every passage that you do read in between at home, so uh, read all the extra Mark in, in chapter 10 this week that we're not going to cover. You just don't want to miss out on anything. Uh, Mark 10, this passage today, it is sort of a classic, and uh, it sparked conversation. Many books have been written on this. Many conferences have been spoken on it. It has a deep, chilling, sober reminder to us about the role of money and possessions and status in life. It's really hard to preach this passage without feeling like an absolute hypocrite. I just want you to know that today. Uh, And so today we're studying the story of the rich young ruler. I wanna describe a scenario that many of us have probably been through, especially uh, husbands in the room, although it could be anyone. But anyway, there tend to be two types of people in this world. There's the first type that, if your order gets messed up at the restaurant, or the drive-through, or just say you get the completely wrong drink given to you at Starbucks, you just take it. You just take it. You just assume this was God's plan for my life today. Uh, you say it's not worth the trouble. It's not worth the added time. You don't love the confrontation, so you just eat the hamburger though you asked for a cheeseburger. You just eat the enchiladas with the red sauce, though you asked for the green sauce. You drink the completely wrong drink at Starbucks and you just think, hey, I like to try new things, right? How many of you are more in that category? How many of you, okay, see, all right. Now, then there's the type of person who will send the food back. You put the cheese on top, I send it back. We ask them to remake the drink. You ask them for the refund. It doesn't matter that you can feel the line building behind you. That feeling on the back of your neck of whispers and uh, just heat, people talking bad about you, you don't care because you paid for it. You have the right to get it the way that you paid for it. How many of you feel that is you? Okay, we're about split. Let's, this is, let's, we're about there. We're about half and half on that. So just so you know, I'm the first person. My wife is the second person, so, which makes for some interesting things sometimes. So. I always joke with her that, that to complicate things, uh, I, I never ask for a special order at a restaurant. On top of this, uh, I rarely change the order. I'm not very picky at all. Um, I have this thought that whoever made this intended for me to have it this way. So, uh, so I try not to change the order. My wife tends to be more particular about what she wants. She's subbing in sauces, different types of sauces, uh, removing the cheese you know, uh, saying things like light ice and two pumps of vanilla, very specific orders. So inevitably there comes a time when I have to order food for her at places and uh, bring it home. And for me, by the way, I cleared this entire example in advance. Just want you to know that. Okay. Some of y'all like this fool. All right. So for me, the first type of person, I feel like when I'm ordering for someone else that I'm snipping small wires to deactivate a nuclear bomb. Uh, And so uh, when I I get the food, I come home, I hand over the bag, and there's always just very happy, very pleased, thank you so much for picking this up. I'm really craving this, you're the best. I'm feeling very good about myself at this moment. And then as I walk away, you hear that voice, wait. (laughs) They put cheese on it? And then in that moment, I know it's over. There's no recovering from that. You can never get back that initial excitement and success of handing over the bag. That one thing has undone everything else. I was correct in all things, but in one area I lacked. I undid all of the good. In today's message, yes, that had a point, you will meet a successful young man who is observing uh, religiously his faith, wealthy. Moral, genuinely interested in Jesus' teaching. However, for all the good that he had, it was negated when Jesus said that haunting phrase, You lack one thing. And that one thing is what we're going to study today. So before we do, pray with me. Lord, I pray today that you would use this text in our lives. Help us to remember it, implant it into our hearts and minds. Lord, though this is a tough text, I do pray that your gospel will ultimately shine. Lord, that uh, as, as many of us will look at this text and feel like we have failed or feel as hypocrites, that ultimately we remember that it's uh, your gospel that makes all of this possible. So help us to run to you in the end. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and turn to Mark 10, Mark 10 in your Bibles. If you see me making strange motions know that's because I don't know what to do with these hands here because this is weird. All right. So many topics are covered in Mark 8 through 10. We've been talking about them. And uh, the unmistakable theme of that transition is toward Jesus' death. So if you've been noticing in the gospel, there's been a clear, obvious trajectory toward Jerusalem. And so in this story, uh, not only do they continue talking about this through chapter 10, they physically start walking toward Jerusalem for the final time. So they, they are on the way. Chapter 11 starts the triumphal entry next week. So like, I know it feels like we've just, you know, not been in this that long, but we're there. We're, we're at the final passion week here coming up next week. So something I considered as I was reading this text is the story right before the story, right before the rich young ruler, there's a little story. It's very short, but I think it actually affects our text today. We have this picture of Jesus in Mark 10, 13, receiving small children to him. People were bringing children to Jesus. And, you know, this is a heartwarming picture. A lot of children's ministries, you know, frame it, precious memories. You have it on the wall framed somewhere. Jesus surrounded by children, blessing them. It's nice. Now, the disciples in this story, in that story, rebuke Jesus, not Jesus. They rebuke the people bringing them to Jesus Perhaps because they thought, you know, he's above this or we don't have time for this. You're you're talking about your death and you're over here, you know, blessing children on your knee. You know, what are you doing? But that angered Jesus. He was not happy with that. And he said these words. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, I want you Though we're not preaching that text today, I want you to take that and file it in your mind as we read the following text. Because I believe this rich young ruler came to Jesus in exactly the opposite way that the children did. And that's one of the purposes of this story. So now let's look at our main text, Mark 10, 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, that is Jesus... of God. We'll pause there. You can hear a pin drop. That's right. Certainly a lot going on in this story. Bear in mind, this is not a parable. Sometimes Jesus uses fake stories to preach a point. This is a real story. This happened. As we break down this account, I believe there's three points that we can make to consider the main idea. Number one, we're about to see a portrait of success. If you're taking notes, number one, we're going to see a portrait of success. So, Jesus and the crew are leaving. They are walking away. Verse 17 says, A man ran up to them. Maybe you want to circle that in your Bible. And he knelt before them. Clearly, this man did not want to miss Jesus. That's why he was running. And certainly, he did not want to argue with Jesus. He got in a respectful position. He took a knee before Jesus. Now, if you're reading this and, and thinking, Well, you just, we just read Mark, and, and we always say this is the rich young ruler. I didn't see any of those words in there. Where do you see that? Well, Mark just calls him a man. But if you compare with the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke, Matthew is where we get the word young. He says this is a young man. Luke tells us that this was a ruler. So we've kind of combined those things together to have one description. Now, if you look at Luke's choice of the word ruler, that reads something in the Greek like an official, a judge, a governor, a magistrate. So this is not a scribe or a Pharisee or a Sadducee, because they would have mentioned him as that. No, this is someone with a position of power in the community, someone with authority. Not only this, this is a young man. So if we look at Matthew, he uses that word young in the Greek word for young man. It's not a child. It's not really that kind of early teen years. It's meant to describe an age of strength in the physical young prime of a man, a uh, man. Probably late teens, early 20s. This is the age when men would go off to war. So that's what that word described. We add to this what Mark says in 1022, that he had great possessions. The word of this, uh, this connotation of that word is land and real estate. In other words, he owned a lot of land. He had a lot of buildings under his name he would have certainly had a very high net worth. So take all of these things and put them together. He had a position of power, he was called a ruler. He was a young man, possibly in his early 20s. He had already acquired acquired lots of land and property and was extremely wealthy. If this man had an Instagram, he would be taking selfies while yachting in Martha's Vineyard with motivational quotes as the caption. He would have a high and tight haircut with an unnecessarily tight shirt, talking about stocks and cryptocurrency. And when anyone questioned him, he could just say things like, but look at all that I have. I'm winning the game. And he had it. This was the portrait of success. And guess what? It still is. It still is today. What are the gods of today? Youth, money, power still as much today as it was then. And then, and yet, this man runs after Jesus. He kneels and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now that's one of those sentences, I know there's an English exercise where you put a different emphasis on the, different, on the word and you read it different ways. Maybe you want to do that later. What must I do? What must I do? To inherit, you can go through and read it each way. I don't know how the inflection was. We know what he said. Obviously, this man had been listening to Jesus on his teaching trail. He must have been trailing Jesus' ministry, aware of his teachings. And most importantly, something Jesus had been saying created that feeling of eternal discontent. You see, every heart whether it's admitted or not, aches for eternity. Even though this man was the portrait of success, there was still something that caused him to ask this question to Jesus. There was something unsettled in him wherein he wasn't sure about his eternal destination. When he put his head on the pillow at night, even though he was surrounded by luxury, The thought that plagued his mind went something like this. If my heart stopped beating right now, where would I open my eyes in eternity? Where would I spend forever? How would you answer that question? You see, the first part of the question that Jesus maximizes on is not one that we probably would have. Jesus says, wait a minute, good teacher. You know, this would have been a strange line to say in this time because nobody used that phrase. They didn't call rabbis good. All good rabbis would have said, I'm not good. And so this is exactly what Jesus says. Now, the ironic part is that Jesus actually was good, which is why this can be a confusing story. Jesus actually was fully good. But as interpreters, we need to now read this story through the lens that Jesus is teaching this man something. This rich young man entered the orbit of Jesus' teaching. In verse 19, Jesus gives not the standard New Testament answer to the question, how would you inherit eternal life? Because we know that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But rather, Jesus gives the standard Old Testament answer The understanding of eternal and abundant life in the Old Testament has always been connected to the keeping of God's law and living his way, and certainly faith was always a part of God's covenant people, but this was standard thinking in the Old Testament. Psalm 119, if you don't believe me, go read it. It's very, very short. Quick read. Now, one reason for this answer of Jesus giving an Old Covenant answer is because, well, they're still living in the Old Covenant at this time. Uh, though it was in its waning days, really, really soon to be switched over to the New Covenant. But the other answer is that Jesus was getting this man to realize something valuable about himself. He was showing him something. Jesus names off seven top popular laws. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the the young man says, Teacher, I've kept all of these things from my youth. Now, if Jesus was as sarcastic as maybe you or I, we might say, well, la-ti-da. We got a perfect man here, ladies and gentlemen. Right here in the flesh. Never messed up one time. Look at him. Take a picture. But Jesus, infinitely wise, chooses another route. Obviously, we know... No one other than Jesus could say these words that I have kept the law from my youth. We know that. Only Jesus could actually say those things. But let's assume, let's assume this young man was a law-abiding young man and that he wasn't just self-inflated and arrogant and completely fooling himself. Let's say generally he was an upright moral man who sought to keep the law. Even then, He comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what what else is there? I've done everything a man can do the right way all my life. But I've also been listening to your sermons. It sounds like there's more to this. What else do I need to do? So that's where we leave number one. We've seen this young man, a portrait of this young man is a portrait of success. Number two, we're going to see Jesus makes a pronouncement of shortfall, a pronouncement of shortfall. Let's read verse 21 together. Verse 21, Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Only Mark's gospel records that little phrase that Jesus loved him. It really colors the way you hear this statement. It's said in complete love from Jesus, but even in love, some things can hurt, right? Sometimes you love somebody, but you gotta tell them something that they need to hear. Jesus, with pure love as his intention for this man, broke him with one sentence, that one phrase. You lack one thing. It's as if to say, let's assume you really did keep all the law since your youth. Well, you missed one. You missed one. You missed one thing. As successful as you are, as strident as you have been in your efforts to keep the law, you lack one thing. And Jesus says, here it is. Go Sell all you have, give it to the poor, then come follow me. There's a lot packed into that statement. But let's first look at the young man's response. What does he say? Verse 22 tells us, it says, was he happy? Did he jump, click his heels? Excitement? No. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus extended to this man a guaranteed ticket to eternal life, an invitation to follow him as a disciple. And he walked away. The thought of selling his land, giving up his property, resigning from his positions to follow around a merry band of homeless disciples was just not something he was willing to do. It was a bridge too far. Now that Greek word disheartened It's a really great word. It means to go dark. He became darkened. It was as if the life and light was sucked out of him when Jesus said this to him. He walked away sorrowful, grieved. So what just happened here? It's over. That's it. The story's over. What what happened? Well, a lot. Here's some things that I can see. Now, before we look at this, it's important to remember because people get really wild with this text. I mean, they just get crazy with it. Uh, this is not a step-by-step manual, a requirement for all Christians of all time. If you're sitting here as a Christian today, and you hear this and you think, wow, how did I miss this? And how come no one else has done it? You know, we're, we're, why aren't we all selling our stuff and, and just having nothing? Well, it's because this was a specific, customized, tailor-made conversation wherein Jesus was teaching this man. He was teaching this man a very specific lesson that he needed more than anything else in his life to hear. What was that lesson? While he was very confident that he had kept some of the commandments, he had not actually kept all of them. Do not murder. Check. Got that. Never murdered anybody. Now, Put aside the part where Jesus said, if you hate anybody in your heart, we're just going to put that one. Because, you know, do not commit adultery. Check. Hadn't done that. Do not steal. Check. All the ones Jesus listed earlier conveniently were not a struggle for this man. But what about there's another commandment in the 10. What about number one? Have no other gods before me. Hmm. Jesus looked into this man's soul. In a way that only he can do. And he diagnosed instantly his deepest idol. Wealth and possessions. And thus Jesus challenged this man. Release the idol. Cut it loose. Cut off the hand. Gouge out the eye. Dash the altar of Baal. Chop down the ashram pole. Let's do this. Cut it down and follow me. And the man says. I can't. And his response proved Jesus' point correct. Another lesson from this text if you live by the law, you will die by the law. That may sound harsh, hear me out. This young man was dedicated to living a good life. But when you Seek to live by law rather than faith. You enter into a game you cannot win. There is always one more law to keep. There is always one weakness you have that lags behind your strength. If it is not a sin of a body, it will be a sin of your thought. If it is not a sin of commission, it will be a sin of omission. Jesus said to the man early in the conversation, None is good except God alone. Notice that didn't deter the young man, from saying that he was good, that he had kept all the law since he was a youth. And that's what made Jesus have to show him. Maybe you've seen Ray Comfort witnessing on the street. If you can you get on YouTube later today and type in Ray Comfort Street Evangelism. He's a master at when people say that they are good, he rifles through a list of checklists for people to let's think about this together, are we really good? And he goes through the 10 commandments. You just have to watch it. But Jesus had to do that here. And a lot of people, they're, they're blind to the fact that they are sinners. And so this is where the law has value today. The law has value today. It is a wonderful tool at showing how inadequate we are to keep it. And then you sweep in with the gospel This man didn't stick around for the gospel. If you seek to live by the law, by perfection, by pleasing others, by doing the right combination of things to earn God's favor, anything less than perfection will fail you. And spoiler alert, you will never make it to perfection. You will never make it to perfection. You know, a lot of youth need to hear that, I've found. Some of us, we're old and crusty, we've been beaten up by life and we know know we're not good. But a lot of our youth are idealistic, and, and they're killing themselves with, with trying to, to keep all of these things, and they don't understand they can't, and that they're not utter and complete life failures if they fail, but they do need to turn to Christ in their failures. I think that's a lesson that, you know, a lot of kids are crushed under the weight of stress today with in ways they never have been before, and I really think that this is possibly a good text to take them to. If you live by the law, you die by the law, unless your name is Jesus. Conversely, if you die with Christ, meaning you're crucified with him, then yet shall you live. This man had an entire alternate life extended to him. It had been said that, it has been said that this was the only man who would ever meet Jesus and left worse off than when he came. He's the only one to whom Jesus extended the offer to follow him, receiving the answer, Of no thanks. This is the power of idolatry, isn't it? This is the power of money. Your idols, hear this, your idols always demand your deepest devotion and sacrifice. It can be money, it can be politics, it can be a utopian vision of society and government, it can be fame, it can be anything. Every man and woman will make sacrifices to the deepest idol, of their heart either you pick up your cross and you follow Jesus or you pick up some other idol some other mantle and follow that thing but you will follow something in this life you will make sacrifices to something in this life this conversation that Jesus had is about unseating the top idol in your life the man who ran up knelt called Jesus good teacher now walked away in sorrow We've seen a portrait of success, a pronouncement of shortfall. Next, we see number three, a post-mortem of the situation. Had to get creative on that word. Hang with me. The post-mortem, that's when you go back after something has died and you ask questions about it and you check in what caused it. A post-mortem of the situation. After the young man walks into the horizon, Jesus then turns to talk to his disciples about what they just saw. Teachable moment, you might say. and for a rich person to enter the kingdom of god and they were exceedingly astonished and he said and then said to him then who can be saved jesus looked at them and said with man it is impossible but not with god for all things are possible with god it certainly seems that they were shocked to hear this news they were not ready for this why well to most all jews Wealth and prosperity were a symbol of God's blessing. That's just how they thought. They had no category for putting a negative value on wealth. And additionally, there was no positive value put on poverty. They didn't look at at the poor and say, blessed are the poor. They just didn't think like that. That's why Jesus was so strange to them. Many of their heroes of the Old Testament were wealthy. They had all the cattle. They, they, they had a lot of things. So when Jesus said, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom, they were shaken by that. You know, this is a healthy warning to us. We live in a time and in a nation, even with inflation, with unprecedented wealth and possessions. So hear this. It is, by default, difficult for you to enter the kingdom of heaven by default because of where you live do you feel attacked in that anybody upset at me why why do we why is that the case it's because listen wealth and possessions are very demanding gods oh boy they are we think god is a jealous god he is But you know what else is? Wealth and possessions. They are very jealous gods. I think you know this. Money in itself is not evil. I always like to say that. Money is a neutral tool. It's like a firearm. It can be used for good. It can be used for evil. It can be leveraged one way or the other. You are not instantly good if you're poor. You're not instantly bad if you're wealthy. But this warning from Jesus needs to be listened to. We don't need to just throw it out and say, yeah, you know, money's what you do with it and and not listen. No, listen. Wealthy people don't often walk into the kingdom of God. Wealthy people do not often walk into the kingdom of God. It is hard for a rich man to enter. How hard? Try to take a camel and run it through the eye of a needle. That's how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is not easier because of our wealth and our possessions. It is harder because of our wealth and possessions. The more money and wealth and possessions you acquire, the harder, here's why, the harder it becomes to heed the call to deny yourself and follow Jesus. The wealthier you become, the more competing interests you have in your life, competing with your time, your friendships, and allegiances. You make some money, see how many new friends you get. Ask anybody who's ever won the lottery. You got out of the woodwork, Cousin Billy, he's, you never talked to him, but he's there. And he wants you to remember, you were close when you were growing up. Remember, it's hard. It's easy to justify giving Jesus a little sliver of the pie of your life because of how important you think you are when you're wealthy. When you have more money, you tend to have more power. And you, you're not used to bowing the knee to people. If you can buy your way out of trouble, it's hard to depend on God. And so now I think it would be helpful to go back to the story that I teased in the beginning. Jesus receiving the little children, and he says to them, to such belongs the kingdom. So remember, we just said it's hard to enter the kingdom for a rich man. We said it's like taking a camel and jamming it through the eye of a needle. That's what it's like. Go to the previous story. Jesus holds a child on his lap and says, to such belongs the kingdom. Then he looks at his disciples and he says, Children. In verse 24, children, how difficult it is to enter. You know, Jesus doesn't really no- call his disciples children, that's not a normal go to for him. But he says it right here. Why? It's purposefully done to connect with the previous story. Jesus extolled the virtue of entering the kingdom like a child as the children are coming to him. And then immediately a man comes to him, completely in contrast. When a child came to Jesus, it was with no stipulations, no idolatry, no ulterior motives, no hidden agendas, no illusions of perfection or goodness. Children don't have anything to offer. They don't have any money to give. They don't have any bank accounts. They don't have any possessions. When you say, follow me to a child, they just follow you, especially if you got a little ice cream cone. They're coming. It's simple, right? It's simple. Drop everything and go. This wealthy man was the exact opposite. Though he may have mostly been morally upright, he was unwilling and unable to enter the kingdom like a child. He would not part with his wealth for anything. He would not follow Jesus even for the guarantee of eternal salvation. Listen to me. No one will enter the kingdom of God clutching to their most prized idol. They will not. This man's idol was money and success. What is yours? What is yours? What is the one thing that you were most unwilling to release? If you were in this story and Jesus was talking to you and you said, I've kept all the law from my youth and he says, you lack one thing, go and What's he going to say to you, looking in your soul, knowing who you are? What is the one thing that you are most unwilling to release to enter the kingdom? Don't be like the rich man who walked away from Jesus over money and property. If Jesus is calling you to release something for his sake today, you do it. Don't make Jesus look at you and say, you lack one thing. You can prevent that by giving him everything. Pray with me.